Welcome back to The Word is Resistance, a podcast exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and thriving in the context of empire, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Blythe Barno, and this is a project of Surge Faith. This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that to be Christian in this time and in this country requires listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. I'm excited to be back for my fourth episode with The Word is Resistance. A bit about me, I'm a queer white femme who was raised working class in Ohio and now lives on the occupied Ohlone land known as Oakland, California. I'm a writer, preacher, community organizer, and minister. I learned what I know about the sacred from harm reductionists, survivors, sex workers, and working class grandmas, my community. You can learn more about me at feminary.wordpress.com. recording this episode in Evansville, Indiana, my sweetheart's hometown. For the last week, we've been driving across the country from Oakland so we can spend the holidays with family in the Midwest. We've gotten to see some beautiful things, like Joshua Tree, rural Arkansas, and my favorite, the Grand Canyon. Still, preparation for the trip came at a hectic time, and it felt a bit overwhelming in the beginning. There was so much to do, so many logistics to juggle, so many loved ones to tend to. We left at 5 a.m. on the first day of Advent, which also happened to be the first day of Mercury in retrograde and the supermoon. Lots of forces at work. It was still dark outside as we made our way down the coast of California, but the giant moon hung over the ocean and there was a stillness that I found comforting. Later, I read aloud two of the chapters from Joan Chittister's book, The Liturgical Year, the the Advent chapters. It helped me to orient to the season and helped me explain it to Dee. If you're looking for a book that offers accessible and relatable descriptions of the church seasons, I highly recommend this one. The past few months of our lives, individually and collectively, had been very difficult and we appreciated Joan's reminder that Advent was about learning to live while we wait. That Advent has the space to hold the reality of our lives and understands that we're still waiting for liberation. Advent reminds us that it's on the way, but we must prepare for it. After reading and talking a bit, we came to see our trip as an Advent journey, a time to slow down, reflect, and prepare for what's to come a time to practice sitting with tension and uncertainty, a time to remember joy, even through anxiety. During this time of year, I often find myself thinking of Palestine, 
a people who are certainly still waiting for liberation, a people who understand the realities of the Christmas story far beyond its metaphors. In January of 2016, I was able to travel to Jordan, Palestine, and Israel with a group from my seminary. And as Dee and I started our trip, I hung an ornament I bought in Bethlehem around the rearview mirror. It's a dove made of aluminum and glass that's been collected from around the town of Bethlehem. Glass from blown out windows after Israeli bombings and from trash left to gather on the streets. In Bethlehem, Palestinians are forced to pay for Israel's sanitation services, but Israel rarely ever collects the trash. So destroyed buildings become lo local trash receptacles and residents are forced to get creative with what's left behind. I bought the ornament after meeting with members of Kairos Palestine, a group of Palestinian Christians seeking to end the occupation. I bought it to remind me especially during Christmas, that Bethlehem is waiting for liberation. Now, I know I'm going a bit off book, so to speak. Usually on this podcast, we take the weekly gospel reading in the lectionary and examine it to see what it can tell us about how to address white supremacy. And this week's scripture readings could certainly help us do that. Like Isaiah 61, 1, that says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord God has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. There's a lot to work with there, but my heart kept coming back to Bethlehem. We were driving towards the Grand Canyon when I heard that President Trump had made a statement recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and vowing to move the U.S. Embassy there in the next three years. I looked up from my phone to the ornament swaying in front of me, and my heart broke with hopelessness. I learned a lot during my trip to Palestine, a trip I was actually very reluctant to go on. See, before going to seminary, one of my primary connections to spiritual practice was through a group called IJAN, the International Jewish Anti-Zionist Network. They invited me into their rituals and showed me the ways you could reclaim the liberatory potential of faith. I owe much of who and how I am to their example. It was through them that I came to learn of the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, or BDS for short. BDS is a campaign that was called for by Palestinian civil society, meaning ordinary Palestinians in order to address the worsening violence and poverty that they were experiencing under occupation by the state of Israel. It's an organizing tactic meant to reduce the profitability of the occupation for both Israeli and American governments and corporations. Because of the occupation, most Palestinians can't avoid purchasing Israeli products. So BDS asked for the international community to boycott products produced in illegal Israeli settlements like SodaStream, or companies who contribute to the destruction and surveillance of Palestinian communities, like Caterpillar Bulldozers and HP Computers. They also ask that you not support the State of Israel through tourism, though they encourage folks to come and see the conditions of the Palestinian people for themselves. I wasn't sure if my trip was a fact-finding mission, 
or if it was considered tourism, so I was reluctant to go. But I'm glad that I did, so glad. And not only because I got to meet one of the leaders of the BDS movement who allayed my fears, but because it forced me to confront complexity. A friend of mine in the Bay Area is Israeli, but is also committed to ending the occupation of Palestine. And when I was telling them about my trip and my reservations, they reminded me that there's no such thing as moral purity. In fact, that idea stems from a sort of perfectionism rooted in white supremacy and toxic Christianity. It's unattainable, especially for the oppressed who are often forced to participate in their own oppression in order to survive. Like Palestinians who are forced to buy Israeli products in order to feed their families. Moral purity is a dangerous lie that many white organizers, myself included, have internalized. It tells us that there is always a right or wrong answer, a right or wrong perspective, a right or wrong way of saying things. It creates immobilizing fear because it turns making a mistake into a moral issue. It keeps us from doing the wrestling and learning we need to do by keeping us more focused on remaining pure and irreproachable than doing the honest, imperfect self-reflection that actually creates change. It hinders our ability to form meaningful relationships across difference, so instead we often relax into a sort of tense intellectualism where we pretend to know everything already. We argue without facts and nod our heads in agreement when we really have no clue what's going on. We just don't want to be wrong. We don't want to be out of the loop. We approach the world with an either-or thinking that ends up isolating us from those who are left to wade through the mess of it all. The idea that we could somehow become morally pure is hubris. When I went to Palestine, I acted like I was the resident expert on the occupation within the group. In my attempt to take the occupation seriously, I ended up just taking myself seriously. In fact, I made all sorts of demands, many of which just exposed my ignorance. For example, I asked that we only stay in Palestine or Palestinian-owned places, and I was angry when I found out we would be staying in East Jerusalem instead of the West Bank. I went to the guide who had worked in the region for years, and who I had incorrectly assumed was white, and asked again if we could stay in Palestine. He assured me that we were. I nodded, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I know this is all Palestine, but can we please stay in actual Palestine so we aren't supporting Israeli businesses? We are staying in Palestine, he said. Frustrated, I gave up and went back to my seat on the bus. A few days later, I learned that East Jerusalem, where we were staying, was still recognized as Palestinian territory by international law because it's on the other side of the Armistice Line or the Green Line. I looked at Peter, our guide, and he just smiled at me knowingly. He'd let me trip over my ignorance so that I could feel the weight of the truth. I had been using the tools of the occupation, the wall, to identify the borders of Palestine while Peter was resisting the occupation by continuing to support Palestinians on the other side of the wall and in doing so supporting their right to stay. 
That day I learned that the people who are building the wall in Palestine are the same people who are building the wall in this country. It's connected. And the wall in Palestine doesn't follow the 1949 armistice line, a.k.a. international law, at all. Instead, it cuts deep into Palestinian territory, a land grabbed by the state of Israel that has severed families and communities and kept farmers from their crops. In fact, if your olive grove was on the other side of the wall, you had to apply for a permit to work it. If you were ever granted permission, you often were only allowed something like 13 hours a month to work the field, and you had to pass several stringent checkpoints on the way. This makes it almost impossible to keep the farm functioning, so people stop going. But Israeli law says that if you go a certain amount of time without tending to your crop, then it becomes the property of the state of Israel, another land grab. Bethlehem is on the other side of the wall, about 10 miles from Jerusalem. In fact, it's about 10 miles from the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified 10 miles away from where he was born. But if Jesus were alive now, it's unlikely that he would ever be able to make it to Jerusalem. And if he did, then he could only go to East Jerusalem. And even then, he would not be able to take the fastest, safest roads because those are reserved for Israelis only. Jesus would have a green or white license plate, which marked him as Palestinian. And even then, he would not be able to drive the whole way. You need a yellow Israeli license plate to drive that far. Jesus would have to go through the checkpoint on foot, which could take three to four hours on a busy morning. I crossed through that checkpoint the first time I traveled from Bethlehem back to East Jerusalem. Some of our group decided to stay on the bus and drive through. There was a long walkway leading up to the first entrance of the checkpoint. It was evening and there were no lights, so a local resident used the light from his phone to lead us up to the gate. There are never any lights. Then we crossed through a turnstile but we had to wait for a soldier to acknowledge us before they would buzz us through. Then we hurried into another building and had to wait again for another turnstile. The same thing. There was a Palestinian man who had been there waiting for an hour, but five minutes after we arrived, they let us through. We put our things through an x-ray machine, walked through a metal detector, showed our papers to an Israeli soldier, and waited to be let through another turnstile. It was only us and the man. It took us about 40 minutes, and when we left, the man who had been there before us hadn't yet been let through. As we exited, there was a soldier standing with a gun drawn and pointed at us. Peter had already instructed us to walk through with our eyes down. This would be how Jesus crossed today. Bethlehem on one side of the wall, Nazareth on the other. Bethlehem on one side of the wall, Jerusalem on the other. To say that the trip was humbling would be an understatement of massive proportions. Politically, I was forced to confront the depths of my ignorance and my collusion in the occupation. Spiritually, I began to understand that the roots of my faith were in this land. That while I did not take the stories in the Bible as literal fact, the places they described were not fiction. They were real. 
I stood in the Jordan River. I ate a cheeseburger in Jericho where the wall actually came tumbling down. I slept in Nazareth, and I saw the room where Jesus ate his last supper in Jerusalem. Going on this trip meant confronting the ways my spirituality was rooted in white supremacy, American superiority, and missionary theology, because it had not occurred to me that there were Palestinian Christians. Let that sink in for a moment. It had not occurred to me that there were Palestinian Christians. But Jesus was Palestinian. It's not just white liberal lip service. He was actually Palestinian. The towns in the Bible actually exist. Bethlehem is a real place with real concerns and not simply a place to carol about at Christmas time. Bethlehem is occupied still. And Christianity was not born in white America. Christianity was born in Palestine. Christianity is an indigenous Palestinian faith. While I was there, I realized that I have only ever experienced Christianity as the religion of the empire, because that's how it's wielded in America. In America, white evangelicals define Christian discourse, but in Palestine, it is still the religion of the resistance, and 20% of Palestinians are still Christian. I was grateful to meet folks from Kairos, Palestine, and I encourage each of you to read their document. In this time of Advent, may we listen to the people of Bethlehem, of Palestine. May we confront our role in their suffering and be inspired by their hope and brilliance in the face of occupation. As I reread the Kairos document, I was struck by how appropriate it was for Advent. In section 5, it says, we call on Christians to remain steadfast in this time of trial, just as we have throughout the centuries, through the changing succession of states and governments. Be patient, steadfast, and full of hope, so that you might fill the heart of every one of your brothers or sisters who shares in this same trial with hope. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15 be active, and provided this conforms to love, participate in any sacrifice that resistance asks of you to overcome our present trial. And in section 10, it says, In the absence of all hope, we cry out our cry of hope. We believe in God, good and just. We believe that God's goodness will finally triumph over the evil and hate of death that still persist in our land. We will see here a new land and a new human being capable of rising up in the spirit to love each one of his or her brothers and sisters. Bethlehem is still waiting for liberation, but Bethlehem has not lost hope. President Trump's declaration that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel is violence against Bethlehem and the Palestinian people. There are no nations who have their embassy in Jerusalem because it is not internationally recognized as Israeli land. 
there is only one embassy in Jerusalem, the International Christian Embassy. Its office was once the home of Palestinians who were forced to flee in 1948 during the war, or the Nakba as Palestinians call it. Nakba means catastrophe. The purpose of the embassy is to support the rehoming of the Jewish people in the Holy Land, meaning they offer financial assistance and other support to Israeli settlers. They're a prominent supporter of the occupation. The man who gave us our tour was a white fundamentalist Christian from North Carolina and a Zionist. He proudly boasted of the thousands of people they had financed to immigrate to Palestine and the settlements that they had established in the West Bank. I didn't realize there was such thing as Christian Zionism, but Christian Zionism is one of the biggest threats to the Palestinian people. Christian Zionists believe that when the Jewish people return to their homeland, a.k.a. Palestine, it will bring about a major war that will facilitate the emergence of the Antichrist and the second coming of Jesus, which is why the embassy so actively supports the rehoming, as they say, of the Jewish people. This thinking fuels American foreign policy with the state of Israel and was a key factor in Trump's decision to name Jerusalem the capital. American fundamentalist Christians are funding the occupation of Palestine and fueling this war. They do not want peace in the Middle East. They want war in order to bring about the second coming of Christ. However, they obscure their interests by claiming to support the Jewish people, the so-called Jewish state, and claiming anti-Semitism when it suits them. But they never play the tape to the end. They never share what they believe happens to the Jewish people once they return. Because in their understanding of biblical prophecy, using Zechariah 13, 8, 9, two-thirds of all Jewish people will be killed, and the other third will be converted to Christianity. In fact, that's one of the main purposes of the Christian embassy in Jerusalem, to convert Jews. The end goal is a mass conversion or extinction of the Jewish people. That is pure anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism and white supremacy are linked. And it's not a coincidence that it is only the United States and the Christian embassy that seek to have embassies in Jerusalem. As white American Christians, we cannot avoid the occupation of Palestine. Palestinians are spiritual leaders our spiritual ancestors, and American Christianity is funding their oppression. White fundamentalist Christians are using veiled racism and anti-Semitism to facilitate the return of Christ. It's up to us to point out how absurd that is. This Christmas, you will hear the name Bethlehem a million times. Let it mean something to you. In each carol, at each nativity set, in every scripture reading, let Bethlehem become real to you. Let Bethlehem exist in Palestine.
going to extend this week's call to action to the entire Christmas season. I encourage you to say a prayer for the people of Palestine every time you come across the name Bethlehem. Consider how fundamental that place is to your faith. How are you going to support it? Perhaps you want to talk to your pastor about making sure to distinguish between the people of Israel and the Israeli state. Perhaps you're the pastor and you want to read the Kairos document from the pulpit. Maybe as a church you want to officially divest from the state of Israel, as many denominations have already committed to do. Maybe you want to donate a dollar or ten dollars to a Palestinian organization for every time you come across Bethlehem this season. Or maybe you want to read up on Palestinian liberation theology. I'll leave links for organizations and additional reading in the resource section of this week's podcast, including the Kairos document and information about the campaign for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. I'll close today with a reflection from the director of Kairos Palestine in Bethlehem. They say, It never ceases to amaze me how every year, and as we get closer to Christmas, my burdened heart lightens up with joy and hope as if through a miracle. I take heart from my my fellow Bethlehemites, who over the ages, and through many a war and an occupation, have never failed to celebrate Christmas and to honor the newborn prince of peace and love. My heart lightens in the shadow of the apartheid wall at my doorstep in Bethlehem. The wall is a dark reminder of Israel's occupation, an occupation that strangulates our lives, devours our land, and denies us the freedom to move and visit friends and family. It reminds me that we simply aspire to live normal lives amidst the abnormality of colonization. Thanks for joining us today. Let us know what you think by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. As always, you can find a transcript of this week's podcast, including links to resources and copyright information on our website. The music you just heard is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014 and is being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We're deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for our podcast. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracheljustice.org. To find our podcast again, simply search for the word is resistance on SoundCloud or iTunes. Next week, there will be a special group episode, so be sure to tune in. Until then, may you go forward in the peace and power of a God who loves us for all that we are and in spite of nothing, the same God that calls us to the work of justice. Amen.